This morning we're continuing our journey through the story for our visitors. We've been reading since January, the first Sunday in January, the story, which is a continuous uh, book of, of God and his people. Its authors, Max Lucado and Randy Frazee, have taken the entire Bible and paraphrased it and arranged scripture so that it reads like a story. And so this week we're on chapter 30, which is the next to last chapter, which looks at the ministry of Paul and his final days in ministry before he was beheaded there in Rome in about 65 A.D. And so we're looking at his third missionary journey, some of his his communications that he exchanged with other churches and Timothy, a disciple of his, and as we remember his ministry in that time. And so this morning I'm going to be reading first from page 446 in the story if anyone wants to follow along. Uh, For those of you that aren't, I think this is about Acts chapter 19 or so, or 18 or 19. Uh, This is Paul when he is sent from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and it's to set the stage to just help us to, to get our bearings of where we're at in terms of his ministry and in terms of what he's been doing so that when we read a couple other scriptures, we'll know. Um, what's happened. And so Paul's been arrested, and this is the letter that the commander of the Roman um, garrison there in Jerusalem has sent with Paul to Caesarea to the governor, Felix, who's living in Caesarea, which is right there on the shore of the Mediterranean. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I'd learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them, during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. The portion of the paraphrase or kind of a summary that Max Lucado and Randy Frazee wrote following this passage, it says, Paul's arrest resulted from anything but criminal behavior and the years he spent waiting for Roman justice would have broken most people. None of the officials he faced could find legal fault with him. The charge was sedition, yet no one would release him for fear of political repercussions. The Roman governor Felix held Paul in custody at Caesarea for two years, sending for him frequently in hope that Paul would offer him a bribe. Finally, Felix was recalled for Rome for failing, among other things, to control local insurrection. The Jewish leaders immediately asked the new governor, Festus, to transfer Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Paul, a Roman citizen, was forced to exercise his right of appeal to Caesar, in order to avoid the grave danger of going to Jerusalem. Next, Paul appeared before King Herod Agrippa II. Agrippa and Festus agreed that Paul wasn't guilty of any crime, but Paul had made an appeal to Caesar. 
So the Roman imperial court would finally get the privilege of disposing his case. Paul's defense before these authorities was more a continuation of his life work than a defendant's plea for justice. Paul tried to show them how important faith in Jesus was for them and for everyone. They refused to respond and placed Paul on a ship to Rome. The second scripture I'd like to read to you today comes from 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 11, and I'm going to be reading verses uh, 16 to about 29, if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible. Paul's responding to accusations. There are false teachers that have come to the Corinthian church. And they're spreading different messages. They're saying that they can do things in different names. And other people are following these different leaders. And so Paul is responding. And he says, I repeat, no one should take me for a fool. But if you do, then allow me to be a fool. So that I can brag like a fool for a bit. I'm not saying what I'm saying because the Lord tells me to. I'm saying it like I'm a fool. I'm putting my confidence in this business of bragging since so many people are bragging based on human standards. That is how I am going to brag too. Because you who are so wise are happy to put up with fools. You put up with it if someone enslaves you, if someone exploits you, if someone takes advantage of you, if someone places themselves over you, or if someone hits you in the face. I'm ashamed to say that we have been weak in comparison, but in whatever they challenge me, I challenge them. I'm speaking foolishly. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I'm speaking like a crazy person. What I've done goes well beyond what they've done. I've worked much harder. I've been imprisoned much more often. I've been beaten more times than I can count. I've faced death many times. I received the forty lashes minus one from the Jews five times. I was beaten with rods three times. I was stoned once. I was shipwrecked three times. I spent a day and a night on the open sea. I've been on many journeys. I faced dangers from rivers, robbers, my people and Gentiles. I faced dangers in the city, in the desert, on the sea, and from false brothers and sisters. I faced these dangers with hard work and heavy labor, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food and in the cold without enough clothes. Besides all the other things I could mention, there's my daily stress because I'm concerned about all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led astray without me being furious about it? If it's necessary to brag, I'll brag about my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, the one who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. And then two other verses from chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord three times to leave me alone. And he said to me, My grace is enough for you, because power is made perfect in weakness. So I'll gladly spend my time bragging about my weaknesses, So that Christ's power can rest on me. Therefore I'm alright with weaknesses, insults, disasters, harassments, and stressful situations for the sake of Christ. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
as I was reading this past week and looking at the passages of Scripture that this chapter in the story covers, it covers the portions of Acts chapter 20 through 23 of of the letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus, as well as 2 Timothy. And as I was reading about the historical setting of these books, it was interesting to me that when we read about the ministry of Paul, especially the second half of his ministry that we cover today, Much of what happens in Paul's ministry at this time is set at the same time that Nero was the emperor in Rome. Many of us know Nero. We know that he was known for his erratic behavior, for his immoral lifestyle, for his brief reign as emperor there in the city. But it's interesting to me that as we look at the scripture today, we look at this man who's known today for his conversion to the Christian faith, for his willingness to endure trial, imprisonment, and punishment for his faith that eventually led to his being beheaded that happens at the same time as as this other person that is known for a very different thing. And so it's interesting today that our chapter of the story brings us to the intersection of the Apostle Paul and of Emperor Nero. Because roughly two years, Paul and Nero resided both in the city of Rome. Nero's time in Rome, we remember for the things he did in the latter part of his reign. It was interesting to me. I learned something as I was reading this week. I always thought that Nero was just crazy and the, and the things that you know, we know about him, about his, his being crazy and his immoral lifestyle and the choices he made. But the interesting thing that one of the books said that I was reading was that actually the first five years of his reign were looked at, they're looked at positively. Which is kind of odd to me. I didn't expect that. And they're positive because Nero had surrounded himself with an advisor named Seneca, who was a philosopher that helped him to look and to practice clemency when facing those that were accused of something. Nero didn't sign death certificates in his five years in Rome, which oddly enough probably resulted in Paul's life being extended for an extra four years maybe because Paul was sent to Rome during Nero's first five years of reign where he was under house arrest for almost two years until he was released. And then he went on another missionary journey and then he returned and that's when he was arrested and finally put to death. And then Nero's first five years of reign were also known for his work at the time to restore the power of the Senate which had been taken by his predecessor. See, that's not the Nero that I remember, because the Nero I know of is the one from his latter years of power. The years in which he saw himself as this artist, this person who's knowledgeable in art, and he traveled about the empire, collecting art pieces that he could display around his palaces, and for doing it, received much criticism. And then there's the years in which he offered the spectacles, or the gladiators in the Circus Maximus, as a way to distract the people of Rome. Or there's the times and and the opportunities that he gave free corn and grain and bread to the people so that their stomachs would be full, so that they wouldn't look around and see and think about how the conditions of their city were declining. But mainly in history, we look to Rome and to Nero and we remember in 64 AD when the fire was lit. There in the city that burned three of the 14 districts completely. Historians today think he could have had that fire started because it was in an area that he had always wanted to build a palace. The fire burned for six days 
And then it was put out and then another fire started and burned for three days. He responded, received much criticism because he did build a palace there that he called the Golden Palace. And we remember him today in the Christian church because of his response to the fire. And next week we'll read in Revelation, if you book the, read the book of Revelation, you'll read that some of the people who are numerologists that look at the symbolism in numbers believe that you know, the 666 that is referred to as the, the beast is Nero's name spelled out. Because in the Christian church, we look and we remember Nero's response to the fire is he attempted to find someone to blame for the fire of Rome. And he blamed the religious faith, the Christians, the people that were following the way, like Paul. And he had them rounded up. Many of them were put on trial. Some of them weren't. Many of them were put to death through the spectacles there in the circus. And their bodies were used in order to light the fires to illuminate the circus so that they could see what else happened. Nero eventually fled in 68 with multiple um, revolts occurring around the empire and outside the city of Rome, surrounded by just some servants, he took his own life. And see, that's what we know him for, is something that, that was not substantial change in this world, but it's something that we remember because it happened. And we look at it today and we can look at it in comparison to Paul. Who's a man who was known and and basically functioned in obscurity throughout his ministry. He wasn't known in Rome. He wasn't someone that, that people would have come to or looked to unless they were coming to hear more about this message of Jesus Christ. But we know that it is Paul's willingness to endure the trials that were before him as he took the message of Jesus to Jerusalem and then to the known world in those times. Because he saw himself as the minister of the Gentile, to the Gentiles, as we read in the scriptures. But our story this morning begins in Jerusalem. A portion that we read, kind of an overview, is Paul has come to the city to bring offerings to the Jerusalem church from the outlying churches that he's created. Paul was good about this. He collected offerings of the different churches and asked them to help support their fellow believers in Jerusalem. And so people did, and they sent money, and Paul took it to them, and he came to meet with Peter and the other early leaders of the church. And there in Jerusalem, he's preparing to go to the temple, and he's prepared himself as any Jewish man would do by purifying himself and waiting the number of days that he had to wait. And then he goes to the temple, and he's accused of stirring up the crowd and bringing Gentiles into the temple. The crowds become angry. People are are coming from all around the city. They begin beating Paul until the Roman commander steps in and saves his life. The next day Paul was questioned him. His accusers were allowed to present their case. The commander finds nothing. And so he sends him to Caesarea because he doesn't want to deal with him any longer, maybe. There he's questioned. No guilt was found. And Paul says, send me to Rome. Because they were talking about sending him to Jerusalem. Paul spent two years in Caesarea. You can go there today. And there's a room there next to Herod's temple where, or Herod's palace where they say Paul was imprisoned for those two years that you can go and see the ruins. When Paul got to Rome after a long journey, after a shipwreck, after being stranded, after, you know, just all these trials happening, he spent two years in house arrest where he was allowed the opportunity to have people come and go. He was allowed to communicate with people. You know, he wasn't imprisoned in a, in a prison like we would envision in those times being. 
And he spent two years there. In a sense, you know, because Nero wasn't hearing cases then, Nero was practicing clemency then. Nero wasn't signing death certificates then. And then Paul was released. And he returned sometime after 64 when the fires had happened, when Christians were being arrested and when they're being put to death. See, both of these men we look to in history and one of them we look to in terms of bringing lasting lasting change into this world. See, Paul's life and his ministry is a testament to his faithfulness and to his belief in Jesus Christ. After his conversion, he responded by going and doing and believing and knowing that even in all the hardships that he was facing, even in all the things that were before him, the message that he was sharing had to be shared. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 30, you know, Paul shares where he's been taken and what has happened to him as he's taken this message to the world. And he's writing this letter not to boast to the Corinthian church, to tell them, look what I've done, look what I've experienced, look what I've endured. What he's telling them is, he's telling them that the reason he does the things he does are not because of him. But it's because of Christ. And because it's his weakness causes him to, to, to have these things happen to him because of his belief in Christ. And so he boasts not in the things that he's been able to endure, but he boasts in his willingness to believe that Jesus Christ has come and has changed the world and has offered himself for all people, Jew and Gentile, slave or free, wherever they're at, however they receive the message. And so for him, listing his trials, listing the things that have happened, is a way for him to show that Christ is working through him. That in his weakness, Christ is made evident. And that's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, he says that God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul decides that he would boast more in his weakness, So that Christ's power may rest in Him and so that others may see Christ working in Him and so that others can see His work in the name of Christ. He uses His trials, His imprisonment, the flogging, the stoning, the impending death as He writes this letter in prison to show that He's simply a man. And in His humanity, His weak. But in his belief in Christ, he's given strength. In a time in which Nero was demonstrating his strength by the spectacles, the armies, the other demonstrations and trappings of power that we remember of Rome, this obscure prophet named Paul was telling the church that his strength comes from his willingness to submit himself to Christ Jesus. And in his weakness, Christ shones through. His strength came from Christ. His weakness was His, but His strength came from Christ. And that's the difficulty that we have with the Christian faith. That our sin causes us to think that we can live a life on our own apart from God. 
that we ourselves think that our strength comes from within, within us, and we don't need anything else. Yet when we face trials, when our supposed layers of strength are peeled away, we find that our real strength comes from weakness, from our willingness to realize that we can't do it alone, and from our discovery that God's grace is sufficient to allow us to discover the work of God in our lives. This morning as we celebrate in Holy Communion, we celebrate and our belief that it's in the grace of God that we find all things. 